It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Utah Weekly Forum, a public affairs show dedicated to learning more about the issues affecting our lives and health and exploring the resources available in our diverse communities to help. Here's your host, Rebecca Cressman. Well, I'm glad to have as our guest today, Dr. Julie Valentine. She is an associate professor and the associate dean of undergraduate studies and research at Brigham Young University in the College of Nursing. And today we're going to be talking about a snapshot, new research that is looking at sexual assault among Utah women, a complicated but very important topic for us to understand. I'm Rebecca Cressman and Julie or Dr. Valentine, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Rebecca, for having me and for your interest in this important topic. You know, for many, many years, I have been following uh, what's called the Utah Women and Leadership Project. And this project is a, is a very important one that takes a look at all angles of women's lives. Uh, where are they working? Um, where are they uh, health-wise, economic, single mothers? How did the pandemic affect them? So we can get an understanding of the lives of women. This this snapshot, this research is focused specifically on sexual assault. And you were the primary researcher, is that correct? I was, yes. This is based on a few of our um, research studies uh, with my co-investigator, um, Dr. Leslie Miles, who is also at Brigham Young University. Let's talk about this research and, and, and what you've learned and why, as a community, it's important for us to understand it. So... Uh, We've got to go back a few years. Back in 2011, I approached Utah Bureau of Forensic Services, which is our state crime lab, an excellent state crime lab, about doing a collaborative study where we really looked at cases in which victims, which primarily are women, 95%, uh, reported for a sexual assault medical forensic exam. Uh, When they report for an exam, uh, we collect a lot of data, uh, first of all, about health care um, and then information to help decide where we collect evidence, we collect evidence, et cetera. But we have a large amount of data. Then these forms and the kits uh, are to go to the crime lab for processing. Well, we really wanted to see what's happening in these cases? We really, no one was collecting this information. And so in 2011, this collaborative project started between the state crime lab um, and myself and my research team and forensic nursing teams across the state, where we aggregated and analyzed data from the sexual assault exam forms, as well as looked looked at, was the kit submitted to the crime lab for testing, and then what were the DNA findings from that collected kit. Because we have started this collection from 2010, and it's an ongoing data set, we have a massive amount of data and are able to look at a number of different 
um, factors, but it really started back in 2011. What's important about this is when we look at Utah has higher rates of sexual violence, one in three Utah women sexually assaulted in their lifetime, one in six raped. Uh, we need to say, what, have we, what do we know about sexual assault in Utah to really then decide what do we need to do as a state, as a community, to reduce sexual violence? And even as you share all of that with us, Dr. Valentine, it's stunning for me to change my perspective. Is Utah a safe place for women or safer than other places? And what you're sharing is the research is showing us that when it comes to sexual assault, the rate is higher here in Utah for women. So kind of you force that pause. Let me take a look at at how I might perceive where I live and the safety of the women uh, around me. And then you also shared something that kind of uh, triggered a memory for me. It feels like I heard and started to look into a number of years ago that there were a number of rape kits that were collected but never processed in Utah, and that that has been changing in recent years. Is that correct? Uh, That is correct. Um, Our initial research was looking at sexual assault kit submission rates, and our first place we looked at was Salt Lake County because that's our largest county, and this was back in 2012, and we found only 20% of collected sexual assault kits from victims who said, I want to prosecute my case and had a full sexual assault examination with evidence collection were actually being submitted. We then expanded that study to look at from Southern Utah up through Northern Utah, and we found we were at 38%. And the differences between jurisdictions was profound. We would have one jurisdiction or county submitting 4% of their rape kits, another submitting 40%, which really uh, gave us a good understanding that, that the decision to submit had been very subjective. We also found that rape kits collected from male victims were much more likely to be submitted than female victims, were male victims believed more. Um, so, As this information, that research became public, this was back in 2016, uh, law enforcement, hats off to law enforcement, they really responded. And again, nobody had been tracking this data previously, but law enforcement started submitting their kits. They looked at, and this was largely driven through grants received from the federal government, the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Grant. Uh, and through Utah Bureau of Forensic Services, uh, they started looking at how many kits do we have in storage and submitting those. So we had this influx of previously unsubmitted kits, but now our law enforcement are submitting about 98% collected sexual assault kits. So we went from 20%, 38% across the state, up to 98%. And this also was driven by legislative uh, action. Uh, Representative Angela Romero sponsored House Bill 200 in 2017 that now mandates the submission and testing of all sexual assault kits. 
All of that is just stunning to hear. For those who just joined us, this is Dr. Julie Valentine with BYU's College of Nursing and Associate Dean there and a lead primary researcher right now on sexual assault and the data, what it tells us about what's happening with women here in Utah. And I believe some of your research was published, was it the Journal of Forensic Nursing? Uh, Yes, Journal of Interpersonal Violence and Journal of Forensic Nursing have been a couple of our uh, journals where this has been published. What a what a difference to be able to say, okay, here's what's happening with your data, and to see that kind of change happen. Um, it it really just um, makes me feel a little breathless to think that in some areas, ninety six percent of the women who reported rape and wanted the kits to be processed or or um, who had been sexually assaulted. That only 4% were being turned in, and now here we are statewide with a, uh, 90, 98%. It's just it's stunning, Dr. Valentine. So now let's take your recent research on sexual assault, and let's talk more about what we've learned. You said our rate of sexual assault in Utah is higher than the national average. What does that teach us as a community? Well, you are accurate when you said, I feel like I live in a safe place. Uh, Utah is, and when we look at violent crimes, we are safer than the majority of the United States, except for one violent crime, and that is the crime of rape. We actually are ninth in the country for the number of rapes, not a number we want. Um, And especially concerning is this is from the FBI data, We also know from a study done by Utah Commission on Criminal Juvenile Justice, the women in Utah are less likely to report. Uh, We only have about 12% that report their rape to law enforcement. So we have higher rates, and yet we also have very low percentage. So what I hope your listeners take away from this is the importance of creating a society where we believe victims. The the number one rape myth out there is that there's lots of false reports that people lie about rape, and the research shows that is not true. Um, There's been a number of studies that have looked at false reporting in rapes, and it ranges from two to 8%. That's the same as other crimes. People will false report other crimes. And if we, in our society believe that there's false reporting, then many victims are hesitant to come forward because they feel like they will not be believed. And if victims do not report, then our numbers stay high because cases are not investigated and prosecuted. So that's that's the first thing is we need to believe survivors, believe victims, and create a culture that is supportive to help them heal and then to prosecute cases. And how do we do that? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, it, that is such a big question because it can be hard to change a culture, change a society, change a neighborhood. If you boil it down to even change an individual, we often just kind of stubbornly hold on to the way we think the world is. And yet your data is telling us that those who report rape or sexual assault are telling the truth. So we need to start believing them. Correct. Correct believe them. Um, that, that's the number one. And when you ask, what do we do? Well, for those that are hearing this message now, do your own research if you want. <laughs> uh, you know, learn more about it and then teach others. Um, because 
it's everybody in our community that makes our jury pool that elects our officials. Um, and so we need to increase our understanding when, when you look at the numbers, uh, you know, one in three sexually assaulted, one in six raped. I mean, think of the number of people you know. And you, you may think, well, I don't know that many. Well, people don't tell, right? And so uh, I will tell you these numbers are accurate. And um, we need to, as a society, change this because rape and sexual assault have shattering effects across every spectrum of a person's life. And as we do that, to me, when you speak up, it, it does take so much courage to do that. It, there's so much that's been violated in sexual assault. A woman's sense of confidence, a woman's sense of safety, a sense of autonomy, uh, in addition to the criminality, the violence that's been enacted upon his or her body. Again, I should include men because they are also very much victims of sexual assault. And then the emotional experience of going through the court system. But when the perpetrator <laughs> is held responsible or held accountable for his or her actions, protection can move forward like a domino effect, not only in that victim's life, but in our larger communities. And I guess I should go back. Has there been research on sentencing, on the consequences of those who are prosecuted and found guilty? You're right. We do need to look at what the, the sentence is. But, but I want to add something to what you said, Rebecca. You said we can hold them accountable. I want to add that we also want these reports because there are actually very good evidence-based therapies, especially for younger perpetrators of sexual violence, uh, to change that behavior. And so it's not just that we can hold them accountable. We can actually help them to change so that they are not predatory anymore. Now, some people do not change, but when we do not hold somebody accountable and they continue to do a behavior over and over again, uh, there's no consequence, but yet we also cannot uh, change that person. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes and sense. Part of our yes. research, mm -hmm. Yeah. So part of our research that's in this snapshot is about the prosecution. We didn't look at sentencing, but we looked at prosecution. And this was a National Institute of Justice a statistical toolkit that I did in Salt Lake City as a study uh, back in 2013 and found that out of women who reported and men who reported a rape and said they wanted to prosecute and had a fully collected sexual assault kit in Salt Lake County from 2003 to 2011, only 6% of those cases were prosecuted, 6%. We redid this study for Salt Lake County and we found we're now at 8% with about 2% of cases that are not yet decided, haven't been adjudicated. So going from 6% to 8 to 10%, that's still abysmally low, but that is an improvement. And the area of improvement for Salt Lake has been in the DA's office. They are prosecuting a lot more cases. We found in our recent study that still about two-thirds of the rape cases that law enforcement get fully collected sexual assault kits, they never screen those with prosecutors. So they stop at law enforcement. So that 
speaks to the importance of improving the relationship between law enforcement and prosecutors' offices. We also, for the first time, did this study in Utah County and found 10% of rapes, um, again, fully collected sexual assault kits were prosecuted. And so as you um, have obviously spent many years studying this, and for those of us who might be less familiar with the uh, cycle of reporting a crime and the crime being investigated and then the crime being prosecuted, there are many, are there many different factors that is prohibiting the prosecution? So you're, 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 you've shared with us that if there is not the direct communication from the law enforcement to the prosecution to go ahead and, you know, to pursue this case, what other obstacles are? Because that is, as you mentioned, abysmally low. Only 11% of the cases are prosecuted. If you think about those are the women who, or men, who stood up and said, I'm going to report this, I want this prosecuted. Only about 11% right. are being prosecuted. What's holding it up? I- Actually, 8 to 10 percent. Yes. Um, so what is holding it up? And we did get data on this. And this was data um, specifically from law enforcement as to why they didn't screen cases with prosecutors. But I, but some of the same information applies to the prosecution. One of the biggies is that um, there's a term that's uh, a difficult term because it's it's it does not sound like a good reflection on victims, but we saw many cases where they would write uncooperative victim. Mm. You know, victim maybe had one interview with police and then didn't show up for the next interview or goes closely with uncooperative victim is victims at a certain point just say, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, And that speaks to changes needed in our criminal justice systems to support victims, especially of rape and sexual assault, Um, you know, increase our resources uh, for more victim advocates and support services um, because they need that, you know, many times. And this is also in our research that we released for the most part in a little over 80 percent victims know they're rapist. And when you know that person, uh, everything is so much more complex, whether it be a husband, an acquaintance, a boss, you might have other people, um, friends or family who say, you know, I think you should just drop this. And then the other aspect is they don't want to do it anymore because a multitude of interviews, they're having to rehash what happened to them. Uh, other studies have found the number one reason that victims will stay with this lengthy and very oftentimes traumatic criminal justice process is because they will feel committed that I don't want this to ever happen to anyone else. And that's the number one reason why a victim will stay with the process. But we need to really look at what can we do to make this more supportive of victims. You talked about, uh, Dr. Valentine, you talked about having more resources and support programs in place uh, for victims of sexual violence so that their reporting process and the prosecution process is one that is um, less traumatic for them. And beyond the resources, is it also 
that we as a community or as a culture or as families or friends, that we need to be also educated on how to be supportive, to encourage people to continue on through uh, the criminal prosecution process? Oh, I love, Rebecca, that you brought that up. Yes, we need to, going back to believing survivors, uh, we need to realize that their healing is not linear, that they may one day be doing pretty well, and then rape, sexual assault, trauma can be so shattering that it, it takes years sometimes decades for people to heal, and sometimes they don't fully heal. And that if we can not put them on our timeline to heal, but give them the space and time and just be that person that doesn't ask questions that may imply self-blame, like, you know, I told you that he was really a bad dude or You know, I still don't understand why you were out at two in the morning. Any of those questions will increase uh, survivors' self-blame, which many have. And so trying to find ways to support in really meaningful and compassionate ways for all of us is important. Uh, If For someone who's listening right now, even having this conversation that we're having uh, with Dr. Julie Valentine about sexual assault and women in Utah, as you mentioned, the statistics bear, I believe you said uh, approximately one in three have been victims of sexual assault at some point in in their life. Is that correct? Correct. That's correct. One in three. So there are many people listening today who have endured sexual assault and may or may not have um, reported it yet and are still trying to heal from that trauma. What resources, Dr. Valentine, are there available in our communities as well as within our law enforcement agencies for victims of assault? Our communities have excellent community support. Uh, Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, UCASA, um, anybody can Google that. There's a, a phone number they can call to find out resources in their community within Salt Lake County. Rape Recovery Center has uh, individual therapy, group therapy, and also just online resources. Sometimes that can be very helpful to read. Um, In Utah County, The Refuge uh, is a similar organization and and provides support for both sexual violence and domestic uh, violence victims. So there's definitely help out there. Um, All of these also have support for secondary survivors. So loved ones or close friends who also feel traumatized from someone else's uh, rape. And so we, we need to support those secondary survivors so that they can support other survivors. And I'd love, uh, Dr. Valentine, that you also explain that the healing process takes time and might manifest differently at different times in people's lives. And so it could be five years later and you can still reach out to these organizations. It could be 20 years later and you can still reach out to these organizations and you can still seek out therapy. But you made such a beautiful, many beautiful points, Dr. Valentine. But one was when we are able to see the crime prosecuted and see the individual, the perpetrator held responsible, not only 
importantly, is that individual who's a perpetrator given an opportunity to learn new habits so that they're not violent against others, but it also provides the victim validation and access to resources as well, which is what we want, right? We want someone who stands forward to report this to then get the help and support he or she needs. There will be more information that is actually quite riveting in this report about sexual assault in Utah. And I wish we had more time to, to talk to, um, to you, Dr. Valentine, about it in detail. Tell us where we can get more about what you've learned. Is it going to be on the Utah Women and Leadership Project website or where can we get more information about this research? Uh, it will be on the Utah Women and Leadership Project website. You can Google that. We also, next week, will be doing a 30-minute podcast through the Utah Women and Leadership Project, which uh, will also uh, be listed. All right. So something else. And once you start listening to the podcast with the Utah Women and Leadership Project, I dare you, dare you not to go back <laughs> because there, we yeah. learn so much about ourselves and our community as we take a, a good close look at the lives of women here in Utah. Dr. Valentine, thank you for what you've done to bring sexual assault out of the shadows and our victims out of the shadows and to help our community become um, a safer place. And it's a journey and it's a process, but thank you for the work that you are doing. And thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Thank you, Rebecca. Utah Weekly Forum is produced by KSFI FM 100.3 in Salt Lake City, a Bonneville International Station. Subscribe to the Utah Weekly Forum podcast online and email us at Rebecca at FM100.com. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.